listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. This morning, my name is Mark, by the way, I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus. It's great to be able to bring God's Word before us this morning, and I want to invite you to two places, Mark chapter 1 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at those two, uh, some of the verses in these chapters uh, this morning as we continue our series on the story of salvation. And I want to begin by a list of people, many of these you're going to be very familiar with their stories that we see in Scripture. Guys like Doubting Thomas, Zacchaeus, Lydia, the lost or the prodigal son, and even Saul. And all of these people share something together, at the same time very different. These are people that have all had a conversion experience. But they're all very different. I mean, you take Doubting Thomas. I mean, he held out believing until he said, until I can touch the wounds in his hands and on his side. And when that happened, he believed. Or Zacchaeus, a man that was a tax collector that prayed on the week. And Jesus comes by and he's passing through town. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. He invites him into his home. And then he goes and he repays four times what he stole. There's Lydia in Acts 16. She's a religious woman. Paul finds her in a group gathered to pray. And it says that the Lord opened her eyes. She then opened up her pocketbook in her house for the gospel. The prodigal son, he took his inheritance, goes to a faraway land and just lives for self-indulgence. Comes to his senses and he goes back home and asking for forgiveness and he's restored. And then there's Saul in Acts 9. He is a violent hater of Christians. He's persecuting them, throwing them in jail, killing them. And on the road to Damascus... Jesus appears to him, and his life is never the same after that as he becomes one of the uh, patriarchs of taking the gospel to the ends of the world. And so they all have a conversion experience, but they're all very, very different. And so this morning, that is where we're going to focus in. And we've been talking about the timeline or the story of salvation that begins with the atonement. Well, that's what makes salvation possible, where Jesus on the cross atones. He, he pays the price. He endures God's wrath so that salvation could be possible. Then to make it uh, where it is true for us, there has to be a calling that no one that has ever lived would ever come to God on their own. We would never do that, that God must call us. And he does that in a variety of ways. Then we saw regeneration, this process that we're born again. Remember Nicodemus, that we have our hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh so that we can then respond to the gospel. And the first three, all of those are all of God's doing. We don't atone, we don't call, we can't regenerate ourselves. That God is the only and the primary agent in all of those. And then last week we looked, Clint did, with justification that idea where we are made right, we are justified before God. And once again, that is all Him. God does all of that. 
Next week, we'll look at sanctification, or sanctification and glorification. But this week, we're going to hone in on the idea of conversion, that moment that we realize salvation is possible and it happens. So think through your conversion experience because these are the only two, conversion and sanctification, that we see this partnership between God and man. It's the only two in the story of salvation. But when we describe our salvation experience, you might hear somebody talk about maybe going to vacation Bible school or a camp. Uh, talked to a dad last week that said over the summer his daughter uh, came converted, came to faith over lunch one day. And I mean, it's great when those things happen. Mine came through my dad doing crossword puzzle or word finds with me and using words of the gospel I became curious about. Maybe it was in a Bible study or during a revival or something like that, that we would talk about this idea of conversion. But here's where I want to go next is how then do you know, whether you were 8 or 80, how do you know that that conversion experience was real, that it took effect, that it's still in effect today? How do we know that we're saved? So the question we're going to answer today is how can I know I am saved. And we're going to look at it in the idea of conversion because no matter whoever it is you read in conversion experience, there's always two ingredients. Without these, there is no conversion. And we err if we talk about or we emphasize one more than the other. They are the different sides of the same coin. Without this, there is no conversion. There's no justification. There will be no glorification. But when it does happen we can know for certain that salvation is always experienced. And in this, we will then answer the question, am I saved? Because without this, there's absolutely no assurance anyone can ever have about conversion. And the great news is, we get to look at Jesus. He's the one that gives us the ingredients for what is, how does conversion happen? What is our responsibility in this part of salvation. And you'll find it in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, it's two verses, 14 and 15, that Jesus himself is going to give us the ingredients for conversion. They're going to jump right out at you. And this is the very first time Jesus ever goes public with the gospel. So this is what he begins with. He wants us to know up front, first thing is the ingredients for conversion. We begin in verse 14. It says, Now after John was arrested, speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee, the region of Galilee around the sea, proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled, meaning there's no other prophecy that needs to happen. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he gives the two ingredients. Repent. And believe. So those are the two words we're going to kind of talk about today. The, the first one, we could use words like believe or faith. And it's the word pistuo. And if you can think back to our series through the Gospel of John, this was John's favorite word. And it's the verb form of faith. And we don't have a verb for that. We don't say, I'm, I'm faithing in something. So we just simply say faith. But it's this verb form of what it means to believe or have faith. 
And the second ingredient that always has to be there, it's the command to repent or repentance. These two ingredients must always be there for conversion to happen. Meaning conversion can only happen where there is faith and repentance. And we err if we focus on one more than the other. They are a package deal. Different sides to the same coin. So let's walk down through then. What do we mean by these words? Because we have to get these right. So faith Always, saving faith, I'll say it that way, there's three elements that are always present when you see saving faith. The first one, we would call it knowledge. There has to be something to believe. You cannot have saving faith if there's nothing to believe in. That poison wrote the song, give me something to believe in. This was it. You have to have something to believe because there has to be something that is true that we believe. But if all you have is knowledge, it's not saving faith. That's why in James chapter 2, verse 19, even the demons believe. Meaning, they had a knowledge, they had the first element of faith, but it can never be saving faith. So there's a second element. There has to be agreement, or we would call it mental assent, to what you're telling me, this knowledge is true. It's this idea of taking something that is knowledgeable and agreeing that it's true. You've turned on the news lately. There's a strange group that's forming, whether it's a joke or not. There's a group that believes that Area 51 houses proof of alien life. And you may be one of them, not judging here. But someone put a thing on Facebook that they're going to storm the gates of Area 51. And the byline is, they can't kill us all kind of thing. And there's even directions on how they're going to run. There's this fictional character that runs with his arms back and bent over. And they say it's harder for them to shoot us. And so they're going to get together because they believe there's knowledge. And we're going to storm the gates because they can't take us all out. Now the Air Force has said don't do that. They don't advise it. But there is a group that has given mental assent that that is true. That it holds proof of, of alien life. But just because we agree that something is true that doesn't create saving faith. And parents, there's where we have to be really careful raising children, is we raise them in a knowledge. And hopefully there comes a day that they take all that you've been telling me about this man Jesus, okay, that is true. But mental assent agreement does not create saving faith on its own. There's a third element that has to be present. And it's the idea of knowledge, mental assent, or agreement, and then active, living trust. It's a wholehearted trust that God will keep His promises in the gospel. That is then when we see the idea of saving faith. It's how you would answer this question. What am I trusting in to reconcile me with God? That idea of justification, what makes that happen? How you answer that question is beginning to show whether you have saving faith. What am I trusting in to forgive my sins and to receive eternal life? So saving faith begins with knowledge and moves to mental assent, but it has to come all the way to a trusting, living, active faith. Well, I saw this in my family. 
Going to the dentist has never been a big deal for me. Uh, for some guy, God's grace, I've never had a cavity. So I've had teeth cleaned a million times, but I've never had to endure any kind of major dental work. For if you have, I've heard it's awful. Now, my children are not so advantaged in the teeth area. So you take your child to the dentist and, and you're, oh, it's going to be fine. You're going to be great. And then all of a sudden, they come out with a big needle. You know, they put the needle in. I'm sure it's painful. And then they go through this process of somebody pulling and drilling into your teeth. Even though you may not feel it, it's got to be there. Just hearing the sounds and feeling different sensations going on. Then as a parent, I know that's not the worst of it. The worst of it's when I get the notice that you need to come back for your teeth cleaning in six months. Because I know that's going to be a battle. Because in their mind... They're going back through all the things, all the pain, all the hardship, and then the numbing, and it wears off, and you, you bite your tongue and lip, and all that stuff that happens. So what do you do? Give them something to believe in. Listen, it's not going to be bad. They're going to just clean your teeth. They're going to put some nice cleaner on. It's going to feel great. They'll floss, and you feel like your mouth is cleaner than it's ever been. So you give them knowledge to believe, but then they have to give mental assent that what you're telling me is true. But then you see the idea of faith being active. It's when they can sit in that chair, take that knowledge, agree that it's true, and then open their mouth. And sit there and let the dentist do what he needs to do. So faith begins with knowledge, moves to agreement, but then it comes full circle when there is active trust. So then let me ask you then, well then when did saving faith happen for, say, Paul? I mean, was it when he decided to go to Damascus and obey? Was it when the scales fell from his eyes? Or what about Zacchaeus? Was it when he came down off the tree? Was it when he gave back the money? Now, Lydia's a little bit easier. It says God opened her eyes. Or what about the prodigal or lost son? Was it when he realized his error? Was it when he finally put that realization into action and walked the road back home? Was it when his father restored him? So I'm saying it's important how we think about and how we talk about this idea of saving faith. When we think about and talk about conversion, we must get this right. But we like this idea of a decision. We like this idea of having this moment that we can write down, we can celebrate, we can remember. And we place a lot of emphasis on that decision. In fact, we even then take terms to describe it. I've heard people say, it's when I came to faith, or when I gave my life to Christ, or I made Jesus my Lord and Savior. Or probably one of the most popular ones is when I asked Jesus into my heart. So why do we place so much emphasis on that one-time decision moment? Well, I think it's because we want to know what happened. We want to know there is something we can rely on, we can trust in to give us assurance that that really happened. But listen, we have to be very careful with focusing just on that decision. So does a decision need to be made? Absolutely. And if you leave here today and say, hey, Mark said you don't need to make a decision, you're a liar and your mother doesn't love you, okay? That's not what I'm saying. 
Absolutely a decision must be made. Tells us to repent and to believe. But we have to be very careful about what we think about and how we talk about this decision. Because if we're not careful, we can talk about this decision to trust Jesus or however we might phrase it. And we make it like a decision. We've decided to like switch laundry detergents or toothpaste brands. So let me give you an example. I grew up uh, loving baseball. But growing up in Arkansas with professional sports, you have a disadvantage because we have no professional teams. We should, or they should, but they just don't. So growing up, I needed a team to root for, so I chose the St. Louis Cardinals. Pretty close to us. I could still get them in the paper and get them on TV from time to time. So in the early 80s, I made a decision. I'm going to be a St. Louis Cardinals fan. And I followed them with all the gusto I had. I had hats, jerseys, posters. It's about early 1980s. The great thing is they won the World Series in 1982. I can remember players like Willie McGee and Daryl Porter and Tom Herr. And my all-time favorite, Ozzie Smith, playing shortstop, the Wizard. I mean, 13 golden gloves. He would go out the very first inning and do a standing backflip. Man, I loved to watch Ozzie Smith play. And I made a decision back in the early 90s. And in some ways, I would say that decision still stands. I would consider myself a Cardinals fan. But today, there's not much to show for it. I don't have a jersey. I don't have a hat. Bad news is I don't have any of the cards. I could tell you they're in the National League, and I think in second or third place. But I, I just don't have much to show for it today. So how much did that decision really matter back in the 80s? So does a decision, a person need to make a decision to trust in Jesus? Absolutely. And we should present it that way. But we need to be careful that we do not place too much emphasis on a one-time decision because then we get a bunch of people that don't have much to show for it today. So saving faith, hear me, it is a decision, but it is more than just a one-time decision. It's more than walking some aisle or reciting some prayer or making a one-time decision. So here's what can happen, I think, if that becomes what we do, if we really just put too much emphasis on this one-time decision and then we move on, you raise your kids, teach them to love Jesus, you do all the things that we know to do, you keep them involved in church, they memorize scripture, they recite the Lord's Prayer, maybe they've even prayed a sinner's prayer. They're moral, respectful to others, kind to their neighbor. And they're doing all of these things great. And we would say, man, those are good. Those are right. We should absolutely teach that stuff. Man, they go off to college. They maintain that nice moral behavior. They never really drastically rebel much. Man, they keep a good GPA and they get a great job. And I think, man, that sounds great. Sign me up. But then if we're not careful, then our children can create and live lives that they don't see any need for Jesus. Because I think what's happened, if we focus too much on this one decision thing, man, they don't feel like they need Jesus because they think they already have him. If we're not careful, then we can be creating these false assurances. So true saving faith does not make just a one-time decision and then move on with its life. That saving faith clings to Christ 
and never lets go. And that's why Jesus doesn't just give one ingredient. He gives a second one. Because it's even more than a one-time thing. And it's the idea the second ingredient is repentance. And the Bible doesn't shy away from this at all. The Old Testament, there's over a thousand references to the idea of repentance. The New Testament, it's almost 300 times. In fact, it's even bookend. Matthew chapter 3, Revelation 3, talks about the idea, the motion of repentance. So then what is it? I think typically we think of it when there's this thing that we do, maybe uh, there's this moral lapse, or there's this sin we do, we feel sorry, and so we confess it, we, we say, I'm sorry, we repent of that thing. We do something, we feel guilty, we're remorseful, and then hopefully we ask for forgiveness. And we teach our kids that. But repentance is more than remorse. It's more than feeling bad. It's more than even guilt. It includes those feelings, but repentance is more. But here's why. We can do something, and we can do something wrong. We can sin, and we can feel guilty. We can even be remorseful and still love the sin. In fact, the Bible talks about it like a dog returning to its vomit. So repentance, the biblical picture of repentance is this idea of turning from something to something. And one of the greatest examples of conversion being completed and seeing both sides and it coming full circle is 1 Thessalonians. So turn over there, and we're going to see it played out in the life of the Thessalonian believers where Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, the writing to this church. And I mean, it's a great book to study. It gives us this great picture. It begins by saying that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy through the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that there's something they needed to believe and they believed it. And it is an active faith. You can see it. Then he goes on. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit with a full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us. And of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with joy in the Holy Spirit. And you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So once again, there was something to believe and they believed it. And it's this active and living faith. But Paul's not done. It's going to show it's more than just a one-time decision. Verse 8, for not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So a third time he talks about this idea of active, living faith. Well, then you get the second ingredient in verse 9 and 10. For they themselves reported 
concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols and served the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So repentance is this idea of turning, of turning from something to God. Turning from what? Does he show us? In fact, you read scripture and you see all kinds of things, lustful desires, youthful passions, evil thoughts and desires. But here, he's very purposeful in using the idea of idols. And there's a reason. Just like saving faith, it does include a one-time decision. Don't hear me say it doesn't. But it's more than that. The repentance is more than just turning from evil desires and behaviors. It's got to be more than that. Because you can change all kinds of behaviors and you can become really moral. But that will never save anyone. It has to be more than that. Because Christianity isn't this, hey, clean yourself up thing and then you'll be saved. Because listen how Michael Lawrence in his book on conversion, how he says it. He says, repentance is being convicted by the Holy Spirit of the sinfulness of our sin. So that is part of it. Not the badness of our deeds, but look, it goes much deeper. But the treachery of our hearts toward God. The repentance is more than just changing behavior. That true repentance is this idea. It's a reorientation of worship. So repentance is a reorientation of what sits at the center of our lives. That it's turning from what we worship to worshiping the one that we were created to worship. Changing behavior, it'll only last for a little while. And it will never save anyone. But when what we love, a reorientation of worship happens... That is where repentance takes hold. And Paul uses the example of idols with the Thessalonians. So what's an idol? An idol is anything or anyone that you don't feel or without it, you can't have happiness or fulfillment. And anything that we put at the top of that list other than the Lord Almighty, that's an idol. And we love to put things up there. And you know what the favorite of everyone in here, their favorite idol is? It's me. It's you. Self is our favorite idol. It's the easiest one to put up there. So he's telling the repentance is more than just changing a behavior. It's changing what you worship and what you love the most. And that is the only way true lasting change will ever happen. Because God is not after just our behavior. He talks a lot about that. But he first wants our hearts. Because if God has our hearts, our behavior will follow. And we're going to talk about that a lot next week with the idea of sanctification. So the believers in Thessalonica, they didn't just make a decision, a one-time decision, or say a prayer, or even go through some kind of, I don't know, ritual exercise. They turned from their idols of what they were loving and trusting in. So there was this reorientation of what they love and actively trusting God in all of his promises in the gospel. So just to recap, the idea of conversion, 
always two ingredients, faith. Not just a one-time decision. It's a wholehearted trust that God will keep His promises in the gospel. Not all the promises we want Him to make, but every promise in the gospel, that's what we're trusting in. In fact, this kind of faith is admitting that we can't save ourselves and at the same time believing that Christ can. And it's putting that idol of self up on the altar. And the repentance is this idea of turning, of reorienting what we worship. And then in sanctification, that almost has to be a daily thing that we do. But just focusing on changing behavior, it'll never last, and that has never saved anyone. So now we go back to the first question. Is how do I know, how can I know I'm saved? Because if you're like me, you've had doubts. I mean, I've thought through several things. Have I really experienced conversion? I mean, did that really happen? I prayed a prayer. Did I really mean it? Or is it just because somebody else said it? Well, I walked an aisle. I was even baptized. Maybe I was just doing it because everybody else was, or I thought it was the the good thing to do. I was just following the, the example of so many other people. So what do we do? How do we know? Is there any way to know? that I have experienced conversion. The good news is the Scripture lays it out very plainly. It's in, one, well, it's in many places, but one of them is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul once again tells us how can we know? How can I know that conversion has really happened for me? Because if it's, if it's all about a one decision, man, I can really... I can really question that. Man, is it all about behavior? And there's times I'm good at that, sometimes I'm not. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He says, examine yourselves. Not go and examine everyone else. You start with yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So Paul doesn't say, hey, go and examine yourself that you made a decision when you were eight or nine. He doesn't go back and say, examine to see if you really meant it when you prayed that prayer with that person at camp. He doesn't say, go and look to make sure that you can remember this one-time moment or some past experience. He says, see where you do in the faith. He says, look at your life today. He's asking, are you trusting or actively trusting in Jesus Christ today? Because that's what matters. So think of it this way. The decision or the question is not, did I make a decision uh, in the past? The question is, am I a disciple Today. Man, if we can answer that in the affirmative, then nothing can give us greater assurance than that. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, the sanctification. Man, one of the greatest blessings of sanctification comes greater assurance. So the question is not, did I make a decision in some historical past event? Do we need to do that? Absolutely. But the question is, am I a disciple today? So think of it this way. 
How do you know you're alive? And how do I know I'm alive? I've brought proof. I brought my birth certificate. You know, this proves that, that I was born, that there was a historical moment, a decision that was made that, that I came into the world in Fort Smith, Arkansas, on August 11th, 1973 at 5.30 a.m. So let's, one way to look at it is, well, I have this, but a better way of thinking about how do I know I'm alive is to ask, am I breathing? The question is not to ask, man, do, can I, do I have this, but am I a disciple today? Am I breathing today? Because is a birth certificate important? Absolutely. You're going to need it from time to time. But the assurance is not in the birth certificate. The assurance comes from, am I breathing? So the question for all of us to kind of take away from today, or I want us to be wrestling with, is we don't need to make a decision then just move on with our lives. That's not what is important. We must have a complete orientation of our hearts in worship, and that is the only way is through faith and repentance. Is am I a disciple today? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.